0: Welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest is historian Teresa Runstetler, assistant professor of transnational studies at the University of Buffalo. We are discussing her book, Jack Johnson, Rebel Sojourner, Boxing in the Shadow of the Global Color Line, published by the University of California Press in 2012. Jack Johnson is a compelling and controversial figure in American sports history. Fittingly, he has been the subject of several books, and recently a documentary by acclaimed filmmaker Ken Burns. Typically, here in the United States, Johnson is viewed in the context of African American history and the story of racial prejudice in this country. But Teresa Runstetler takes a different look at Johnson in her new book, viewing the world heavyweight champion as a global figure. Johnson, after all, won his title in Australia and lost it in Cuba, and he was an exile in Europe. South America, and the Caribbean for nearly a decade, escaping dubious legal charges in the United States. But Johnson was not simply a wanderer. During his time abroad, he wrote frequently in newspapers against racism in his home country, and he was something of an icon to groups struggling against white colonial rule in India, South Africa, and the Philippines. For these people, Johnson's victories over white boxers were cause for celebration. Meanwhile, white officials in these countries and in the United States saw Jack Johnson's success in the ring as a threat to their power. As Teresa says at the start of our interview, Johnson is a fascinating character, and we see in his story the mixture of international celebrity scandal, and politics already in the early 20th century. Her book shows him as an athlete who is famous and notorious around the world. This is a necessary view of Jack Johnson, and I appreciated the chance to talk with Teresa about her work. So let's turn to the interview. My guest this week on New Books and Sports is Teresa Runstetler. Teresa, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I will say at the start, Teresa, that I've been in academe for a long time, but I've never encountered someone with your particular background. So could you give us a, a brief introduction and, and tell us how you got into academics?
1: Oh, absolutely. I did not have the traditional path by any means. In fact, I remember when I was an undergrad at York University in Toronto, and I, I was taking a... Uh, renaissance italian history i thought to myself oh i never want to be a historian um but that changed i actually after i graduated from my undergrad i uh was a professional dancer for a little bit um and i was a freelance i had um I had an agent and I also actually danced, if you can believe it or not, for the Toronto Raptors NBA team while I was in college. Uh, so I had a little bit of exposure to sport in that sense. Um, and then after that, I worked for, uh, um, the PR department of a national sports, uh, broadcasting, um, outlet in Canada. Which uh, is actually, I think, this, this a subsidiary of Fox Sports Net, and I just decided that I wanted to get back to things that I thought I was good at, so writing and exploring history, um, but in a way that I I found entertaining, and that included doing sports history.
0: Okay, and so what led you to write this particular book on Jack Johnson?
1: Well, I read Gail Biederman's wonderful book called Manliness and Civilization, and I had actually never heard of Jack Johnson until I read that book back in, I think it was my first year of graduate school. And I just thought that he was an absolutely fascinating guy for the early 1900s. And at the time, I was really interested in trying to figure out how to do uh, a history, a kind of popular history of black internationalism. And when I looked at Jack Johnson's travels throughout his uh, entire career, and the fact that he basically traveled to almost every continent, uh, I thought this is one way that I can actually begin to get at that story, because I can look at the ways in which People back home in the United States in the black newspapers understood him. I could look at foreign uh, newspapers that covered him, and so it opened up a whole window onto black transnationalism and also white imperialism in the early twentieth century.
0: So, can you tell us what fascinated you about Jack Johnson in terms of a of a character?
1: Ah, uh, you know, the fact that he had such access to the press in the early 20th century was what absolutely blew me away. Um, we usually think of people like W.E.B. Du Bois um, and, of course, other black intellectuals and artists as having uh, the sort of the most prominent space in the black community, and I think that has something to do with the ways in which black history is actually studied um, by academics. But what I found was Jack Johnson was constantly being quoted in the press. Um, And he said very political things at various points, Um, you know, commenting on things like the White Australia policy, commenting on the hypocrisy of British imperialism. And it really struck me that this was, you know, a man who was not just a kind of rebel without a cause, but somebody who actually understood the politics of his time.
0: Well, to follow up on that, I want to ask about the, the subtitle of the book, Rebel Sojourner. So what, what do you mean by that?
1: That's actually an homage to Claude McKay and he's actually recently been in the news that is Claude McKay for having a new, um, newly discovered novel. Um, but Claude McKay is really sort of the quintessential figure of the Harlem Renaissance who was known for being kind of a misfit when it came to the rest of the uh, Harlem Renaissance writers because he refused to sort of be hemmed in by uh, very definite notions of blackness. He was also somebody who traveled uh, quite extensively. And so he was a wanderer. Um, And he was somebody who really, was in touch with the pulse of the black working class in various places, whether it was in Harlem or it was in Marseille. And I felt like in particular, his book called Banjo, which is a novel uh, that he wrote, which follows sailors um, who are kind of living in the underbelly of industrial um, imperial capitalism in the early 20th century that the characters that he was writing about were actually a lot like Jack Johnson and a lot like other African-American boxers in the generation before Claude McKay, who had traveled, who had learned about the politics of imperialism um, and understood Jim Crow as, you know, a local phase of that world problem. Um, and so Rebel Sojourner is really an attempt to try and connect Jack Johnson with that kind of, trajectory towards the new Negro, because I think he was absolutely, him and of course, other uh, black athletes and black cultural workers were absolutely essential to sort of setting the stage for that transnational imaginary that emerged with Garvey and Claude McKay and others in the 1920s and 30s.
0: So Johnson wasn't the rebel sojourner. He was a a representative of a type of, of black
1: male at the turn of the century. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, Jack Johnson, he's not necessarily an exceptional figure. Yes, he was absolutely exceptional in his talent in the ring, but on the other hand, he was traveling in these uh, transnational circuits of imperial power, culture, uh, and capital, Uh alongside many other African-American men who could not sort of find their place in the United States because of racial discrimination. Um, And so he's one of many who formed what I I call in chapter four, the Black Atlantic from below.
0: So can you introduce Johnson for us? Give us a sketch of where he was from and his early upbringing?
1: Absolutely. Jack Johnson uh, is from Galveston, Texas. And he was born in the late, ni- uh, sorry, the late 1800s. And he came of age in this port city where, uh, unlike the more interior parts of Texas and, um, other parts of the deep south, there was a little bit of racial fluidity. Um, in his early days, he liked to kind of run along the docks and play with an interracial gang of boys, Um and so that really kind of set his expectations for what he imagined was possible in his adult life. And the other part of being close to a port city was that it opened him up to foreigners, because there were constantly people traveling through Galveston who were, you know, talking about lives that they were living abroad, and the possibility of spaces where You know, Jim Crow was not as pervasive. From there, he really, you know, he didn't follow the kind of traditional path of racial uplift. So in that sense, he wasn't the kind of traditional race man in the ways that somebody like Du Bois or somebody like Booker T. Washington, you know, promoted, because he didn't um, continue with his education. He was from a poor family. He had to go to work at the age of 12. He worked on the docks as a stevedore and he found that to be really taxing, backbreaking work. And, and he just didn't see himself as continuing along that path, even though that was sort of the expected path for a black man of his station at the time. And so he figured he would, you know, try his hand at fighting. Um, and he traveled all over the United States first fighting um, as first an amateur and then became a professional fighter. So his life, even before he left the United States, was one that was marked by uh, poverty, by insecurity, by constant travel, and by uh, a really a kind of um, a much more worldly outlook than one might expect from somebody from the Southwest.
0: And then in late 1906, Johnson went to Australia to box. So what led him to to go abroad?
1: Well, his manager at the time told him that he wouldn't experience the same kind of discrimination in Australia because Australia didn't have uh, the same kinds of racial legislation in place. Um, as the southern United States. Now, of course, what um, Australia did have the White Australia Policy, which was basically, um, starting in 1901, a set of policies that prevented the easy flow of people of color onto the continent. However, they made an exception for Johnson. He was able to get in. Um, and, uh, you know, at first they were nice to him and <laughs> excited to see him even if they kind of imagined that he was going to be this happy-go-lucky minstrel, because that's uh, the way in which a lot of Australians sort of came to know African-Americans was through minstrel mm-hmm. um, music. And uh, he turned out to be anything but a happy-go-lucky minstrel. Well,
0: then I'll ask about that, because he did get into, uh, uh, there were various wrinkles during his time in, in Australia. Can you talk about, talk about those?
1: Yeah, one of the biggest wrinkles for Jack Johnson was that he decided to have a white girlfriend, um, and very publicly so, and her, her name was Lola Toy, and allegedly she spent time at his training camp, um, she spent time in his hotel room, and uh, basically what happened was almost a year later, after the relationship had happened in 1907... Fast forward to 1908, a newspaper in California uh, published a report that said that Jack Johnson had said he was going to marry a white Australian woman. Um, and this got back to Australia. And one of the major newspapers there printed it and printed Lola Toy's name saying that she was going to marry Jack Johnson. And then all of a sudden, you know, she had things thrown at her in the street, and um, You know, she got called all kinds of racial epithets and um, was really castigated in the court of public opinion. So she actually decided to sue the newspaper for libel. And she ended up winning, even though the newspaper's lawyer tried to argue that there was no color line in Australia, and therefore it wasn't inherently libelous to say that she was going to marry Jack Johnson. Um, Well, the court saw her side of the story and and saw the fact that the court of public opinion had a very uh different conclusion and that it actually did matter that she had uh had this relationship with jack johnson so even before he actually riled australians with uh the fact that he had beat white men in the boxing ring by taking a white girlfriend uh, he created uh, quite a controversy over there. So when he came back in 1908 to fight Tommy Burns, the stage was already set where the white Australian public really wanted to see him lose.
0: So in 1908, Johnson defeats Tommy Burns in Sydney, and he becomes the heavyweight champion. So what was the um, um, what was the global response to this event? Because this is something you talk about in the book.
1: Uh, the the response was varied depending on uh, where the news was going. Um, what There was a, a wonderful article in Boxing Magazine, which was a British-based boxing magazine, um, in which Hugh McIntosh, who was the promoter of the fight, talked about the various places in the non-white world where the film um, and news actually even before the film Uh, managed to get to these spaces, just the news, the telegraph reports, um, and even the pictures of Johnson defeating uh, Tommy Burns made it to places like South Africa, um, the Philippines, uh, even the Solomon Islands, and other places in the Pacific. And basically what was sort of across the board response was the fact that people were embracing Johnson's victory as a way of Celebrating the fall of, of of white power, in a sense. So they took his this victory of an African American over a white Canadian. Incidentally, a lot of people thought he was American, but Tommy Burns was Canadian, and they saw this as evidence of the fact that there was a lot of hypocrisy underlying, uh, you know, prevailing ideologies of white supremacy, and of course people being colonized people, um, they saw a kind of symbolic victory in Johnson's victory.
0: So you discussed the aftermath of the Burns fight, and you'd mentioned the the showing of films around the world of that fight. Uh, But an even bigger event in terms of a worldwide media event is Johnson's fight with James J. Jeffries. So could you talk about that, please?
1: Uh, It's actually in 1910, and it happened on Independence Day in Reno Nevada um, and it was actually even a bigger uh, a bigger production than the Tommy Burns Jack Johnson fight because uh, Jim Jeffries was the undisputed white world heavyweight champion he had actually relinquished his title voluntarily and retired and so it was always thought that well maybe if we get Jim Jeffries to return to the ring he will finally rest the title um, away from Johnson and back to the hands of, of white America. And so there was a lot riding on this fight, and it was promoted as this kind of war of the races. They actually called it the battle of the century. And um, uh, they made specific plans to film it, and some companies like Edison, and other uh, film production companies set up their cameras around and they actually made a production of it, which could be distributed not only throughout the United States, but also uh, to places like London and Paris, uh, where they had sort of a, a built-in fighting um, audience. Um, but what they were most scared of was the fact that the fight might get into the hands or the fight film that is might get into the hands uh of colonized people. So there was a whole flurry of activity, particularly across the British Empire, uh in places like Calcutta, in places uh uh like Cape Town, where newspaper editors were writing in uh their sort of editorial pieces saying the best thing that can be done is to prevent this film from coming into our domain. Because if, even if a few people watch it, it's going to get spread like wildfire all throughout communities of color. And this will put that doctrine of white supremacy, uh, in serious jeopardy. And so there were all sorts of movements. Again, we mostly know about, um, the backlash against it and the riots that happened in the United States. And people in South Africa and other spaces, even in the Philippines, which was still, you know, uh, a a US colony at that time, were worried that, uh, you know, this kind of rioting and unrest was going to spread to colonial locales. And so in a lot of places, they did actually end up banning it. Um, But nonetheless, people... Still heard about it, um, you know. It's like that forbidden fruit. You you um, make it illegal, and somehow it becomes all the more desirable to to find out more about it.
0: So, in the rest of the book, it comes across that that Johnson's victory over Jeffries was really the most significant match of his career, much more so than than his victory over Burns, which made him heavyweight champion. Why Why was that the case? Why was it the Jeffries fight that? stood out in his career
1: well Tommy Burns was seen as kind of like a little guy in a big man's game he was a smaller heavyweight and as I said before James J. Jeffries had actually relinquished his title um, and there hadn't been a proper succession because he hadn't actually been beaten so there was a series of years where the title changed hands um, and there was no sort of clear front runner. And so after Tommy Burns, um, after he was defeated, people thought, oh, you know, how could this guy put his title on the line? And now, you know, we need to get back uh, the glory of, uh, you know, white boxers and by extension, the white race. And so there was a big kind of ramping up and supposed crisis uh, that they called it a crisis, a white hope crisis. And this is where that phrase called the great white hope comes from. The idea that, you know, there would be some white champion eventually who would come in and set things right and beat, finally beat Johnson and practically knock him out
0: and i was going to ask about this so all of his subsequent challengers were regarded in one way or another as the white as the white hope and all of these matches between johnson and the assorted white hopes they all became major major media events correct
1: absolutely and in fact what's really interesting is that there was this whole phenomenon where people were actually promoters were searching for the next great white hope so they actually had a lot of boxing matches between white contenders fighting it out to become the white hope well those actually were not very big box office successes because what people really wanted to see was johnson being beaten um and in particular the fight against stanley Ketchell, he was another um sort of smaller heavyweight he actually you know, knocks him down, uh, knocks Johnson down at one point in the fight. And because people heard about that, even though Ketchell lost, the fight film actually became really, really popular and was shown in a, a lot of locales and made a lot of money. Um, so it was this idea that people wanted to see it almost like a Darwinistic competition of the survival of the fittest. And they hoped that the white boxer would come out on top. So in
0: 1911, Johnson travels from the United States. He goes to England for, for a match. What was the reception he received there in England?
1: Initially, when he went to, uh, the coronation of the King, you know, he was welcomed and he, I, I think that in some ways he was almost like a spectacle to behold because he was this very famous fighter.
0: And, and, sh- and can I interrupt there to, uh, to have you describe how Johnson, his appearance, because you do have photographs of him in the book, and he had this, this very distinct way of carrying himself.
1: Oh, absolutely. He was always dressed to the nines. Um, he wore three-piece suits. He had uh, jewel-encrusted walking sticks. He often wore uh, hats. He often wore fur coats. He often wore lots of rings on his fingers. And so, in some ways, and this is sometimes how I I teach Jack Johnson um, to my undergrads, is that he was like almost like the precursor to the culture of bling, the culture of conspicuous consumption. He, He really epitomized that in a lot of ways, and this was sort of his way. Of defining himself against the kinds of stereotypes of the uncivilized um, uh, unsophisticated black man who you know was primitive so he was anything but that but it was almost like a a performance in excess <laughs> um so he comes and he's got this you know larger than life persona as well he's also a great talker um and he he's able to you know crack jokes with the best of them and you know stand uh stand tall and proud with the best of them um and one of the things that happens is that the white press in the united states kind of makes fun of his quote-unquote anglomania and they say well you know britain you can have him because we don't actually want him anymore um and britain in a curious way At first sort of claims him because it's a way of saying we are not like the United States Um, Because at the coronation they also had uh, Non-white people from their various colonies and dominions on display as well And this was sort of a way of saying we are the right kind of imperialists because we you know We are unlike the Americans. We are not as violent I mean, of course, this was all fiction. Um, But, you know, Jack Johnson very much functioned in that way. Now, when they found out that there was a fight in the works against the British imperial champion, um, Bombardier Billy Wells, things suddenly shifted. And all of a sudden, he was no longer this sort of exotic black American that uh, white Britons could embrace and say, we're going to take the moral high ground over white America. It became this kind of fight against, um, literally against somebody who was an embodiment of the colonies at a time when they were uh, worried about their ability to maintain their, their burgeoning empire.
0: And can I ask you to explain what happened with that fight? Because that is an interesting story.
1: Yeah, it actually never happened. Um, there was a lot of controversy surrounding it. There was uh, a very spirited reverend named Reverend uh, F.B. Meyer, who took it upon himself to make it his cause uh, to go against the fight. And the rationale behind it was that this was going to bring barbarism to uh, to Britain. Um, and that also, too, at the same time, Britain had a responsibility as an imperial nation to ensure that they wouldn't put on this type of display of potentially a black american man beating the british imperial champion right in the heart of the empire um, london because one of the things that they knew of course from the johnson jeffrey's fight was that the telegraph and film made it so that what you did in london was no longer isolated in london and that in fact people would follow it in the colonies um so yeah jack johnson tried to uh work with the promoter james white to keep that fight going but eventually winston churchill you know again a big figure that we normally associate with the glories of the second world war he was the home secretary at that time he actually declared the fight illegal and against the best interests of the nation and the empire. And that kind of shut it down. Um, and then everybody else jumped on the bandwagon and, uh, there was really no place for that fight to happen all throughout the British Isles.
0: So Johnson goes home back to the States, but then in 1912, he's, he's forced to sneak out of the country and forced to go overseas. Uh, by legal charges against him in the United States. So, can you talk about those charges and and um, how did they how did they affect Johnson?
1: Well, the Mann Act charges and conviction are really usually the thing that people ask me about immediately when when we talk about Jack Johnson because that's mostly what people know. Um, essentially, the Mann Act was a white slave traffic act. Um, it bars uh, the interstate uh, and international transport of prostitutes or just women for purposes of debauchery and immoral purposes. The, the, the wording is very flexible and loose. Um, and in the early 20th century, prosecutors found it very useful because they could use it to take down people politically, and in particular they could use it to take down black men with a degree of power and of course Jack Johnson was one of those men and of course he liked to date white women some of whom came from the sexual underworld because that's sort of like the circles that he traveled in because he lived um, he, he lived and partied in the urban areas where brothels and saloons uh, were and so he came into contact with women of the night um and so they saw this as the perfect opportunity to bring him down and you know a lot of people have described the man at conviction really as J- johnson's kind of the apex of his career and then it, the decline and that's true in the sense of looking at him as a boxer but him as a kind of political agent um, and global icon, uh, that's really not the case because he ended up going into exile until 1920. So basically for seven years, he was living outside the United States and he traveled all over the place and really gained, uh, you know, an international following, particularly among people of color. Um, And he became politically involved uh, in a lot of ways.
0: And he did speak and write against the Mann Act.
1: Oh, absolutely. He, I mean, this is sort of later on, he actually um, was the first one to launch his own pardon campaign while he was still in jail. So it, you know, even before Ken Burns and, and uh, you know, the multiracial committee to pardon Johnson uh started up their petition campaign. Johnson had already written uh to various people, including the Attorney General, saying that this is obviously racially motivated. I did not, you know, uh, commit a crime under this act because they had actually convicted him uh for his relationship with um uh with a former girlfriend that he had actually had before the man act was passed. Um, So there were a lot of layers of deceit um, and just outright um, really trying to take him down that he commented on long before um, Ken Burns and company.
0: Following up on that, and this is something you had mentioned at the start of of what originally fascinated you uh, about Johnson. Um, While he's living essentially in exile, he publishes his first memoir for a periodical. And uh, so I wanna ask what, what did Johnson, uh, cause he was actually, he wrote a lot. Uh, what did he write about and what, uh, what stances did he take in his writing?
1: Well, interestingly enough, that uh, serial publication actually happened before he went into exile. So in 1911, but it got published again when he was in exile in 1914 as a book. Um, and, and this is years before his uh, English autobiography came out. So this is a French periodical called La Vieux Air And there was a series of installments that were published on a weekly basis um, and really were kind of billed as the the feature story of the magazine. And, I mean, one of the most interesting, just to give you an example, is in the very first installment of that autobiography he actually you know kind of draws on uh some of the things that were happening happening in the quote-unquote negro history movement at the time where people were uh intellectuals were drawing a link between african americans and the glories of egyptian civilization so as to speak back to this idea that african americans had no past And that the only past that they actually did have or could claim was a slave past um and so he actually says you know who built the pyramids in egypt not white people and in fact they built those pyramids at a time when you know people in europe were living living and i think he says something like a miserable existence in caves and so he was really kind of Pushing back against the idea that black people were not civilized and that they had no history um, And he does this throughout The various installments. He sort of In another, just to give you one other example He writes a lot about his childhood And the fact that uh, You know, the, the struggles that he went through as a young child Fighting poverty Um, and just having to survive in Galveston actually made him the champion that he is. And so reclaiming his history as uh, an impoverished young black man, um, and, and really, you know, injecting a kind of dignity in it that it didn't have, you know, in, in any other stories. And so, in some ways and what i argue in the book is that this is one of those narratives of exile that a lot of people who study um you know black transnational literature really point to this idea that one leaves the united states and gain perspective um can can write from a safe space outside the united states um and actually critique it in ways that were not possible back home. And he really does that. Uh, He takes advantage of all the French fans and their sympathies for him in order to get this message out about not only himself, but also his people as well.
0: So I want to go back to what you had talked about earlier when he does uh, return to the United States in 1920, he surrenders to the authorities. And uh, uh, you had talked about what drew him to go back. And I want to ask you what what really, yeah, I would say touched me was for all of his travels, for, for, you know, how much of a cosmopolitan figure he was, this this sojourner, as you describe him, Uh, when he returns home, even though he knows it means he's going to jail, he demonstrates just the most basic love for his homeland.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. He considered himself to be an American, um, and even though for a while he rejected the United States and left the United States, he missed. He missed his friends. He missed his neighborhood. He missed, you know, his family, and 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 he also liked certain aspects of the United States. I mean, where does this idea of conspicuous was consumption and sort of bombastic personality live itself out i mean that's you know in some ways a quintessentially american way of being and um so he felt really conflicted and that's why uh I talk about him as being a figure who's really emblematic of double consciousness, if not multiple consciousnesses. Um, because, you know, he, he, on the one hand, is, is trying his best to become included, you know, in the United States body politic, but at the same time, he recognizes that he's part of this diaspora of people. Uh, of people of African descent. He's also part of a broader kind of colonial world that includes, you know, Asians, uh, colonized people, indigenous people. Um, and so he has, you know, a lot of kind of conflicted allegiances that he has to kind of work through throughout the course of his life and his career.
0: And I'll ask, what became of Johnson after his his years in prison then?
1: You know, he, he tried his best to um, stay relevant, um, but the tides really began to turn, uh, especially with the rise of um, the black fighter, Joe Lewis, who in many ways, uh, his management team, his public relations team tried to cast him as the absolute antithesis to johnson like this was not just a matter of joe lewis being the antithesis of johnson but this was actually a fabrication that his team worked very uh worked very hard to maintain um because joe lewis liked clothes he liked fast cars and he liked white women Um, but that never, you know, got into the press. But nonetheless, Jack Johnson tried to align himself with this emerging champion and was rebuffed, um, in a number of ways. And he really kind of fell into a kind of obscurity. I mean, not complete obscurity because people in the community still had a lot of respect for him. Uh, People abroad still knew who he was. So when he went to Paris in the 1930s, he could walk into a Parisian jazz bar and people knew who he was. Um, but at the same time, you know, he, he ends up having to do things like, you know, being on display at a kind of freak show in some ways or being on display at a circus or carnival in order to make money. And that's really sort of, You know very tragic in a lot of ways and um i mean the story of his death is like the ultimate irony where he you know leaves a diner in a huff after not being served and actually gets into a car accident and dies and so you know jack johnson really in a lot of ways tried to push those boundaries but the changes just didn't happen in his lifetime.
0: Let me ask you to Teresa to, uh, we're running out of time. Um, going back to your unique background coming into study American history as a former performer, did that give you, do you think any, any unique insight into a figure like Jack Johnson? You know, if I wrote about Jack Johnson, I haven't, stepped in front of tens of thousands of people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that, you know, for me as a scholar, having come from this kind of unconventional background, you know, I'm not somebody who would write about literature with a lot of comfort because to me, the world that I know very well is the world of performance and, you know the world of artifice and the world of promotion um, and the world of professional sports um, and sort of having been in that world and seeing what people actually go through on a daily basis to 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 make it to the top to me that you know i have some sense of how these things work and and the fact that race does place even today such a central role in things like casting. And and even in, you know, professional boxing. I mean, it's ultimately about who's going to bring in the biggest box office. And so, you know, I felt very, very happy to write about this stuff because it meant that I could read you know, all these cool magazines instead of <laughs> the personal papers of some random administrator. Instead of um,
0: Italian Renaissance letters?
1: <laughs> instead of the Italian Renaissance. Um, and, and to me, I always saw Jack Johnson as being the vehicle through which I could reach a certain audience that probably wouldn't read a book on Du Bois or wouldn't read you know, a sort of densely theoretical piece on the Black Atlantic. I mean, those are, those works have been absolutely influential in my conceptualization of Johnson, but I wanted to come at it from a different perspective and one that I felt very comfortable writing about.
0: So I'll ask you, what are you working on now?
1: That's a good question. <laughs> um, I'm actually, you know, toying with a couple of projects right now. I've started to work on a project that looks at Black performers in the generation right before Jack Johnson, um, who were Jubilee singers and black minstrel performers. Um, and there were a lot of Black-owned troops that actually went to places like New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa even before Johnson became a huge star. And so looking at the ways in which Black culture Becomes this kind of lingua franca throughout not only the diaspora, but also throughout the the colonial world in a lot of respects And I'm also toying with the idea of looking at Henry Armstrong who was a big fighter in the 1930s who in a lot of ways got overshadowed by Joe Lewis Um, And sort of thinking about him in concert with people like Kid Chocolaté who was also a big fighter um, in the 1930s in Panama, Al Brown, um, and sort of thinking about the ways in which um, sport and the New Negro um, coalesces in the 1930s. Um, so I've got a couple things on my plate. I haven't quite decided yet which one's going to be the, the one that I'm going to pursue first.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Teresa Runstetler about her book, Jack Johnson, Rebel Sojourner, Boxing in the Shadow of the Global Color Line, published in 2012 by the University of California Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like history, science fiction, and sociology. If you like what you heard here, Please follow new books and sports on twitter or friend us on facebook you can give us your feedback offer suggestions and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world i'm your host bruce berglund thank you for listening and enjoy your week